Welcome to today's NPM podcast. Uh, joining me today is uh, Garrett Peterson, co-founder of Sigma Renewables. Uh, Garrett, welcome to the program today. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, Garrett, we have a lot of room to cover on the issues of permitting and interconnection. Uh, but before we get there, a couple of headlines have come up uh, this year alone uh, that have been interesting in terms of the, sort of the adventures in, in getting full permitting for these projects. It's never an easy process for uh, renewable energy. Um, but we, in the past few weeks alone, like I said, we've seen an El Green Power being ordered by a federal court to remove its Osage wind facility over failure to obtain mineral rights which if it fails to win its appeal, will be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, elsewhere, uh, Hecate Energy was trying to advance its Shepherd's Run solar project in New York, um, but it was revealed recently that they let lease, lights, lease rights lapse on 220 acres of an 880-acre area plot, which would have housed the project. And um, news reports have indicated that could it lead to a redesign of the project. Uh, in spite of um, the New York ORS office um, issuing a draft permit for the project back in the fall. Uh, but that's only the tip of the iceberg of um, just the um, issues that come up across the country uh, for developers such as uh, Garrett's company in terms of trying to get the correct permitting and then through the life cycle of the project. Um, but before we start talking about some of those issues, uh, Garrett, perhaps you could give us a little introduction into Sigma uh, in terms of the business model, and uh, what issues do you guys see as a startup platform? Yeah, so Sigma Renewables is a developer of community solar, distributed generation, and um, standalone energy storage projects. We're um, really focused on a, a few key markets, obviously, where those projects are complementary to each other. But the startup startup world for uh, community solar development or, or DG solar development is, is pretty challenging. It's really coming from a standpoint of the life cycle of projects and how long projects really take to come to fruition. You know, part of this discussion being about how challenging permitting can be, how challenging interconnect can be. You know, there's also state regulatory issues, um, different program requirements, things like that. And so when really starting to build a business, it's, it's a daunting task to look and say, well, we might not have a project that's NTP until 18 months from now. So so how do we fill that in? Would, do we do that from an investor profile? Do you do you bootstrap the company? You know, we've we've done a bit of development as a service for some owner operators as a as a way to kind of bridge the cash flow for the company. But that's you know, that's one of the real challenges. The other challenge is the industry itself has grown so much in the last five years where the very established players, everybody we all know, have become even more established, have more access to capital, cheaper cost of capital, larger resources. And so when you're competing to secure a, a project site, you know, with the, with the likes of those big competitors and, and don't yet have a track record for your company, that's, that's a big challenge to overcome. So, um, you know, you've got to, we have to be scrappy and we have to, to be creative in, in our business model. But those are, those are challenges that any startup is going to face, whether they're in community solar tech, you, you name the industry. But 
you know, this is this is an industry I've been in since 2009, and it's it's something I've built my career on, and, and we're looking forward to to really moving Sigma Renewables forward as a company and and a developer in the community solar and energy storage space. Great, thanks for that. So let's talk about some of the leading issues today at the local and state level, which are stopping uh, projects from getting properly permitted. I think one of the biggest challenges between the local and state level is just the, the, the lack of how the two policies really shake hands and, and marry up. State policy coming from um, a legislative base is saying, we want this type of renewable energy in our state, be utility scale solar, distributed scale solar. And a lot of local communities that don't politically align with that capital, with the, the state legislature, don't necessarily agree with the process, don't necessarily agree with the, um, the idea of the value add. And I think there's a there's a major disconnect between the idea of a state saying we're going to have 500 megawatts of community solar and all the local communities saying, well, we don't want it here. And so how do you how do you get those two to, to frankly line up? And that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, it's it seems to be a, a story of kind of our, our times right now, but it, this has become a hyper politicized issue in which a lot of rural areas frankly identify as, as red and see renewable energy as a directive from a, a state capital like Albany, for example, or Richmond being a blue agenda. Um, I think as developers, we know that it's it's not. You know, there's there are there are huge um economic factors at play and there there are a lot of benefits that solar projects and renewable energy projects bring bring to communities that are 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 missed in that but there's oftentimes pushback on the local level from an ideological perspective of what that energy source kind of represents as a whole that that factors a lot into permitting boards um, how your project is portrayed i've seen a lot of developers shift from the idea that maybe solar is the savior to a community to more of this is a landowner rights issue. You know, landowners should have the ability to decide what they want to do with their own land. And if that's leasing it for solar, they should have as much right to do that as to farm it or do anything else with the land. But oftentimes there's a lot more involved on the local level. Um, there's a lot of influence in small towns and, and people who have have spent a lot of time um, trying to establish what they believe is the best community and that community might not support solar. And, and we see it on the utility scale level as well. You know, you read the headlines about significant pushback and that's the reason some of the state siting boards have been developed because of, of broader initiatives that they know wouldn't pass on, on a local level. Um, so it's, it is, it's really challenging from that permitting perspective and it takes, it takes a lot of community interaction and a lot of grassroots effort to bolster support from, say, school districts or local boards of commerce or, or any any other um, call it groups involved that are going to see ancillary benefits of these projects. So let's talk about some of those state boards, uh, the New York Office of Renewable Energy Siting, uh, the Ohio Power Siting Board. 
uh, you know, are two very active bodies that we see there and sort of moving projects forward in their respective states. I know uh, Virginia has proposed many levels of legislation in the past few weeks alone, which does include also establishing a, a, a state authority at um, the, the state commission um, level. Um, what's your thoughts on uh, these boards? Are they effective enough in what they're doing? I think the boards are effective on a, a utility scale level. Hmm. And that's obvious from growth of utility scale projects. I think the biggest challenge with these these kind of um, the state siting boards is the cost and the time associated with them do not lend themselves to being supportive of a DG project. So, you know, 94C in New York, that is a multi-million dollar process and multi-year. A two megawatt community solar project can't support that type of cost or that timeline. You know, um, you've Illinois passed legislation that didn't allow the the local counties to establish more stringent rules than than a baseline ordinance throughout the state. And that's definitely been helpful. That's that's opened up some of the communities. I think it's created some good standards. And that's that's an example of where I think it's been effective on the DG policy. Maryland has the CPCN process. And again, that's it's not as um, maybe costly as New York's 94C process, but it, it does it's, it can take years to get through that. Um, it requires a ton of legal representation. And so when developers are looking at, at taking that route to somewhat supersede local authority, it's, it's a very much an economic decision and a timeline-based decision because there could be uh, no more program capacity left by the time you get through that, you know, depending on what the state is. There's, there's also the idea that while you may be getting one project through on on a local level, what does that do to your company's reputation as a whole the next time you try to go secure a piece of land or the next time you get in front of a, a different permitting board? Is there going to be a, just a, a negative connotation with how your company operates? So that's another factor that developers have to figure in into their um, permitting plans. Why is the 94C process so expensive? It involves, um, I, and I'm not, I should caveat this with, I'm not a 94C expert, but it involves a much more detailed study. It involved a, a lot of New York state agencies. Uh, there are a lot of regulatory filings that have to take place with that, that uh, you typically have to hire some sort of external legal counsel and external environmental yeah. representation. And those the bills and the time just very quickly add up. Got it. Um, just at the federal level now, uh, switching gears um, for agencies like the Department of Energy, uh, can they de do more at this point to ease permitting for these projects? I think the DOE, um, the best thing that the DOE could do for distributed generation, just try to focus on that that aspect of it, I think the the thing that's really challenged for distributed generation is, frankly, uh, a disparity of the value of these resources to the local grid, to local economic uh, benefits, to schools, to 
subscribers, et cetera. And a lot of the companies go out and, and commission some of their own studies that can look a little bit heavy handed or, you know, you have a very uh, localized view of a single project. You might have a white paper that shows one single project's economic benefits to a community and things like that. I think the DOE as a whole needs to to really look at the collective value of a distributed resource and, and the economic benefits, the rate savings, the, the economic savings, the CO2 emissions that are avoided, the local taxes that are now being added to school districts and other you know, taxing authorities, the collective economic benefit to the subscribers, et cetera. So that developers can truly put together kind of a uniform view of, of why a distributed energy resource is valuable and why it has multiple benefits and really be able to put that in front of permitting boards to say this was a this is a comprehensive study put together by the DOE that really does highlight this to to frankly better inform county boards and local municipalities, cities, et cetera, of the benefits to, I think, remove some of the negative connotation that they have with community solar or distributed resources. So um, just going to interconnection, um, can you talk me through some of the challenges of some of these smaller projects uh, securing interconnection agreements today. One of the the biggest challenges that we have with interconnect is the we have a largely aging grid. The utilities have traditionally built the grid where demand is needed, and so you have substations that are more sited near population bases or industrial load and things like that. And when you're developing a distributed resource, you know, you might need 30 acres, 40 acres. Can you find that relatively close to those population bases or the industrial load? In some cases you can, and in some cases you can't. And so there's always the, the, the idea that the developer is going to be paying for those upgrade costs as a way to get the energy to where the load is. I, I think everybody's pretty well aware of that. I I think on a on a very detailed level, there is so much discrepancy between utilities, how they administer their interconnection process, the timelines required for it, how they view um, things like max substation load versus minimum load, how much allowable renewable resource will they will they put onto that substation what do they view from engineering you know capacity calculations on wire size and things like that where now as a developer because i needed to be three miles away from some some area to find a big enough piece of land i have to upgrade three miles of line in order to be able to put the power on on that line and it's it's all, all a factor of site selection and understanding the risk of your project. And some of the biggest challenges are uh, a lack of available information as well from a utility as to the line size um, and how to really quantify the risk of interconnection. A, a lot of utilities will have 
improved and, and given developers hosting capacity maps. Again, there's discrepancy as to how often those maps are updated, how um, accurate is the information or what level of information are, are they willing to give. And that, that again, plays, plays a role in the success of your project. You know, if there's if there's two places your project is is likely going to fail it's either at the permitting level or the interconnect level after that if you've if you've done your site selection properly and somehow didn't sign a lease on a massive wetland or a historical civil war battlefield or something like that you're you're probably in a decent spot but those two fail points are extremely prevalent in in development so um it's it's just something where depending on the available information to developers they can be more accurate and, and feel slightly better about deploying tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars into studies but in some cases i i do feel like uh a lot of developers are, are just applying for interconnect and, and in some cases just hoping for the best yeah, which brings us to the subject of cost again. Uh, you, you started the the beginning of that question about sort of the, the well known issues that are out there, and obviously in the grid scale market, we hear plenty of uh, complaints about um, things like backlog and keeping the option alive. You know, on these projects as they're waiting for these interconnection studies to be completed, and you know, at this point, it seems like every regional grid operator is affected by all this, so there's really nowhere to run. Um, except for, you know, places like the Southeast and, um, you know, certain markets in the Southwest, I guess. But, um, you know, is it, are you observing like changes in developer behavior as a result of this? People maybe becoming more, uh, more picky about where they choose to develop or what they're broadcasting that they're trying to develop. I mean, just curious your views on that. I, I think the interconnect the interconnect um, issues is a little bit of a of catch-22 in the sense of in the markets where you see that an interconnect queue position is relatively cheap. So just you need some site control, you need a single line diagram and a site plan, and you need $1,000 and you can have an interconnect queue spot. In those locations, or in those states, you see a lot more backlog in terms of an interconnect queue. Mm -hmm. And it's it's advantageous for developers to sign multiple sites, to put multiple um, projects into the queue, because then if you can stack up those projects, maybe you can absorb upgrade costs across the projects, especially if the utility doesn't have a an outline cluster study process similar to like an ISO cluster study process. But then in other jurisdictions or utility territories where you see where it's it's an expensive interconnect position, developers are are definitely taking more time and I feel like putting in less projects mm -hmm. because of you know your your interconnect cost, your initial application might be twenty five thousand dollars. And then your subsequent study costs come very quickly. So the the cost of failure, so to speak, is is much higher than some of the other uh, utilities where $1,000 gets you into a queue and holds your position. And, and you can you can point to that from a, you know, a megawatt standpoint or a financing standpoint. But it, those those utilities are so backlogged that 
you know, you might have 10, 12, 15 projects backed up at a sub. So, um, you know, I, I think one thing developers are doing well is, is really pushing for cluster study queue reform. And the idea of, you know, let's say you have a substation that can handle four megawatts and there are six projects in, in queue on that. Well, one one of those projects can't handle a substation transformer upgrade, but if they study those six at once, they all elect to be a part of that cluster study, maybe they can all pay for that substation upgrade and have six successful projects. Um, it's also especially dependent on the energy rates and if the you know if the program recs and things like that provide more value, then those costs become slightly easier to um, to absorb from a, a project cost perspective. But where you see a lot of projects failing is where utilities don't allow cluster studies and there is a, a major equipment upgrade somewhere in the circuit or the substation that every developer who tries to break through that is going to fail. And they're just going to spend tens of thousands of dollars, do a study, lose out, and then the next developer is going to come in. So that creates a vicious cycle that I think a lot of developers are are aware of and are really actively trying to avoid. Got it. And uh, just lastly on that note too, is it like, um, just kind of wondering if also community solar developers themselves are just like widening the scope somewhat into what they are more holistically as a DG developer and looking at um, smaller projects like rooftop solar as a result, if that that's what's happening more more than not. Yeah, from from a community solar perspective, if you if you say, well, now maybe we could look at rooftop. I, I think that's a that's a factor of the program capabilities. Okay. For example, in Colorado, the energy rate of the Excel's of Excel standard offer program or their what's going to be their community solar program don't support rooftop solar. And the the rate is just too low. So there could be a lot of space in Denver Metro, but they they can't participate um, in places like Maryland. You look at BGE. There's just not that much land. So as a function of just necessity, developers have to figure out how to be on rooftop. I think the the better developers out there have a project pipeline that is varying from behind the meter PPAs to community solar to some form of virtual net metering. Also, you see uh, a lot of developers are, are shifting to kind of fill the gap of somewhere between large DG and, and transmission, if you want to call it sub sub transmission, where those 10 to 20 megawatt projects, you know, what opportunities are there? Are, are those pro are those being kind of left somewhere in the middle between pure community solar and utility scale developers? But that's an entirely different type of project development and and financial structure. So I, I think the better better developers are are out there trying to figure out numerous ways to get electrons onto the grid. But none of it is there's there's not a silver bullet for it. You know, like New York, New York has huge renewable energy and community solar goals outside of Con Edison and and maybe you know. Um, Long Island, rooftop solar doesn't work. You know, you NYSEG zone C does not support rooftop solar. So unless there's an incentive that 
adds adds a lot of dollars to the financial stack that that side of the, the market will go completely untouched got it okay well that's about all the time we got so uh garrett thanks for uh participating today and uh please tune in next time uh work out